Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the God who spoke the world into existence and also the God who has revealed yourself through your inspired holy scriptures. And you have taught us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, O Lord. And so we ask that you would feed us now. Teach us by your word. Help us to receive it with understanding and to respond with faith and with love and with obedience. And would you do this all to your glory? We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So please open your Bibles now to our sermon text as we continue in the book of Jonah this morning in chapter 3, page 774, or 775 in the Pew Bibles. So Jonah chapter 3. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Perhaps you thought the great fish in chapter 2 was the highlight of the book of Jonah, but what we have recorded for us here in chapter 3 is one of the most astonishing, astounding, breathtaking, bewildering, extraordinary. I won't use every word in this thesaurus, but this is one of the most incredible events in recorded history, you would never expect the great, violent, wicked city of Nineveh to be brought to its knees in repentance by 
the simple preaching by a single solitary man. 120,000 people, the whole city from the least of them to the greatest. They are humbled and contrite, mourning their sin, turning from it and seeking the Lord's mercy. And the good news is the Lord has mercy upon them. This morning we want to ask the questions. What could explain such a remarkable event? And what can this teach us about repentance, the importance of it, and how to go about repentance in your life? Look at our passage this morning in three parts. First, it all begins with the repentance of Jonah himself. And we'll see, second, the repentance of Nineveh. And then third, the wonderful mercy of God. The first, it begins with the repentance of Jonah. This book of Jonah, it falls neatly into two halves. And as we begin chapter 3, it almost seems like the book is starting over again. In fact, the first two verses are almost a repeat of the first two verses of chapter 1, the opening of the book. The main difference is that word, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And this is only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God that Jonah is given a second chance after his utter rebellion against the Lord. We saw in past weeks how Jonah, he blatantly disobeyed the Lord. He ran from God, and yet the Lord, he pursued after him. We saw the Lord rescued him from the deep, from death itself. The Lord rescued him from what he deserved for his sin. And now, in his mercy, he is giving Jonah a second chance to obey the same, the original commission. Would you give Jonah a second chance? I don't know that I would. I don't know that I would choose this man to be the Lord's representative to a city like Nineveh. And yet, we see here the amazing grace of God, how he restores Jonah and how he can use even a man like Jonah to accomplish his purposes. The Lord truly is a God of second chances. He redeems us and he uses even very imperfect instruments and he works through them. And while you should never disobey the Lord in order for him to humble you, we do see that the Lord uses even this. We see how after Peter denies the Lord three times, Jesus then restores him to be, I'm sure, a far more gracious pastor than he would have been if he had never fallen away. We see how Moses, he kills a man in Egypt, a horrific crime. But the Lord uses this to get Moses to flee from Egypt so that he can be tempered and trained during his years in the desert in Midian so that he can later return to Egypt, the man ready to lead God's people out. We see how the Lord takes Saul. He is the great persecutor of the early church. And he turns him to be, become the great apostle to the Gentiles. And so never think that because of your checkered past, the Lord cannot use you. He is the God of the second chance, the third, the fourth chance. But the road to being used by the Lord 
always goes through repentance, turning away from your sin, embracing obedience to the Lord. That's what we see from Jonah this time. As the call comes to Jonah the second time, he has been through death and back, figuratively speaking. He's finally learned his lesson. He dare not disobey the Lord again, but rather this time he goes. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This time he obeys the word of the Lord. Then we get a reminder about what this city of Nineveh was, was like. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. We were told already of the city's greatness in the original call. Now it describes the great size of the city. In the final verse of Jonah, the last verse of the book, we're told of its population, 120,000 people. Now that might not seem like a large city today, but that was a large city in ancient times. And this reminds us of the scale of what Jonah is facing. One man heading into this massive and violently wicked city. Could he really accomplish anything? Or was it more likely that he would be mocked or beaten or arrested or even killed? Now, of course, you know the end of the story. But it helps to imagine what Jonah was going into. What he, he must have approached this city with trembling. But then we see Jonah's message. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh Nineveh shall be overthrown. What a message. Jonah preaches with great simplicity and with great clarity, and he preaches of the coming wrath of God. is a message exclusively focused on judgment. The description here, speaking of the overthrow of the city, it reminds the Bible reader of the destruction that came on Sodom and Gomorrah. That is what was soon to befall Nineveh. And the brevity of this message is actually stunning. In the original Hebrew, it is only five words. Now you might wonder, Did Jonah say anything more than this? Just five words? That's an open question. This might be a a summary of his message. Perhaps he said a bit more. Perhaps he elaborated. And personally, I, I think he must have said more than simply these five words repeated over and over again. But if it is a summary, then true to Scripture, Scripture being an accurate summary, he stayed on this theme, the theme of coming judgment. And so there's actually no call to repentance here. There's no promise of mercy. There's no real details about the Lord, his God. As much as Jonah did not want to go and preach to Nineveh, when he got there, it seems to be clear that he preached the message that the Lord gave him. And knowing Jonah, I think Jonah enjoyed preaching this. Because we know that this is what Jonah wanted. He wanted Nineveh to be overthrown. And he got there and he got to tell them about it. Jonah does not preach grace. He does not call them to repent. And yet, the Ninevites, 
they rightly understand that since there is still 40 days until the coming of this destruction, that implies there is still hope. There is still time to repent. And there is a hope that the Lord may be merciful. He may not send the judgment that he has declared. But before we look at the response of the Ninevites, I want to tell you that this message, this message of judgment, this message of wrath, this is a message that must still be preached today. A message I must still preach today. Now Jonah preached of a temporal judgment, the destruction of an earthly city. It would bring the death of all its inhabitants. But that destruction, just like every judgment in the Bible, it's only a picture. It's only a foreshadowing, only an inbreaking of the great judgment that will come on the last day. On that last day, God will judge every person for every evil deed. And wrath and judgment will fall upon you for every sin you have committed. Now, it was gracious of God to send Jonah ahead of time to warn the Ninevites that judgment was coming, for there was still time to repent. There was still time for mercy. And the same is true today as well. It is a gracious thing to learn about judgment ahead of time so that you can repent You can turn to Christ. He is the only Savior who can deliver you from the wrath to come. Let's consider, second, the repentance of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh's response to Jonah is extraordinary. It's told to us in two parts. First, we see the response of the people in verse 5. Then we see the king's response. First, his personal response, and then his edict to all the people. We get an overview of, we're going to see this overview of what Nineveh's repentance is, and then I want us to consider what can we re- learn for our, from it for our own repentance. So first we see in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believe God. They believed God. They believed that Jonah brought a message from God, and that message was true. Imagine this, here's a foreigner with a message from a foreign God, perhaps a God they've never heard of. And yet, when they heard the word of the Lord, they believed. It's all the more amazing when you consider that usually we want to believe messages that are convenient for us, messages that go along with our preconceptions, messages that make us feel good, that build us up. But this message was deeply inconvenient. As you've seen here, Jonah was no prosperity preacher. He wasn't preaching health and wealth. Rather, the coming of death and destruction. And yet the Ninevites, they heard this and they believed and soon the whole city was on its knees fasting and in sackcloth. There's also, when you think about it, no way that Jonah preaches to 120,000 people. We're told explicitly Jonah didn't preach to the king. He heard from others. And so it must be that Jonah preached to only a small portion of the people, and they were so struck 
that they spread the news. They told others this news that John was preaching. It spread through the whole population like wildfire as one person told his neighbor who told his neighbor, and on it went. So what is the explanation for such an incredible response of repentance as we're told from the least to the greatest? Historians do tell us that at this point in history, there had been some natural disasters that had befallen this area of the world. Things were not good in Nineveh. And so it's likely the Lord had prepared Nineveh in certain ways for the arrival of Jonah. But even in that, even if the city was economically depressed, that can't possibly explain this response. This can only be a work of God. As 2 Timothy 2.25 says, it is God who grants repentance. This belief, this repentance was God working in their hearts. Their belief in God then goes on to manifest in their actions. So we see next how they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth, all of them, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now sackcloth, some of you may know, it's a rough, it's an uncomfortable cloth. It's scratchy, it's ugly. It's typically worn during a period of mourning. And here the people, they wear it to represent that they are in mourning. They are grieving over their own sin. And we see the king's response in verse six. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. When faced with the word of the Lord, the king over all, this king exchanges sitting on his throne, garbed in his royal robes, for sitting on the ground. They're sitting on the ground in ashes, garbed in sackcloth. In other words, he thoroughly humbles himself before the Lord of all the earth. But the king doesn't just repent on his own. He must have summoned his counselors and his court. He confers with them and they put out this edict. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. And we already saw that the people in general were already doing this. The decree would reinforce this, hopefully catch any who had not already responded. The king and his nobles, they add their voice to the voice of Jonah. And one detail that often stands out in this all, I don't know if it caught your attention, is that the animals are included in both the fast and the donning of sackcloth. This accurately reflects the culture of that time in which household animals would often be included in mourning rituals. It also anticipates the fact that the animals, just as much as the humans, would benefit if the Lord would have mercy on the city. Otherwise, they too would be destroyed. And so they too are included in the mourning and the fasting. But the most important part of this king's decree is not just the morning, not just the fasting, but the call to let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. In true 
In true repentance, there must be not just a remittance of wrong, not just a grieving of sin in the heart, but a change of behavior. And that's what we see in this last part. The people must stop what they're doing wrong. They can fast and mourn all they want, but if they continue in their wickedness, then all this mourning accomplishes nothing. And that really brings us to our consideration of what can we learn from the repentance of the Ninevites. Where we see here the three aspects of true repentance. When you repent of your sin, you must repent with all that you are. And that means repentance with the mind, repentance with the heart, repentance with the will. Or you could say it with three H's. Repentance with head, heart, and hand. Repentance with the mind is, first of all, recognizing your sin, calling sin what it is, that it is sin. It's refusing to blame, shift, and blame another. Refusing to call it is simply a mistake. Refusing to try to wriggle out of responsibility for what you've done. We see that the Ninevites, they took responsibility for their sin. First, when they believed the word of God. When they believed what was coming. And they begin to repent. They accepted that his judgment was coming upon them. And they understood that it was what they deserved. Now it isn't said explicitly in this passage that the Ninevites did this next step. But usually repentance with the mind is taking the step to verbally confess your sin. To say, this is what I've done. Against you, Lord, I have sinned. This is what I've done. This is the particular sin I have committed, and it was sin, and I broke your law, and there is no excuse. Along with repentance of the mind comes repentance of the heart. And here we see the importance of mourning, the fact that your sin is grievous to the Lord. And here we need to make a distinction between mourning over the negative consequences of your sin and mourning over the sin itself. Anyone can mourn the fact that I've sinned and it's really messed up my life. I've sinned and I'm really suffering for it. Woe is me. No, a true repentance with the heart is mourning the fact that I have sinned against the Lord. My creator and sustainer, the one who has given me life and breath and everything. I have done what is evil in his sight. We saw this distinction in our reading earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. We are to mourn over the fact that we have offended our Lord and Master. We have sinned against His great goodness to us. As we look at how the Ninevites mourn and grieve over their sin, the question does arise, it's a very practical question. Is their mourning, is their grieving an appropriate example for us today? Should we fast? Should we put on mourning attire over our sin? Well, Jesus does say that until he returns, this is in a time when it is appropriate for his followers to fast. But he does warn us not to do it to show off to others. And so perhaps you are repenting over a sin in your life and you decide it would be appropriate to spend time fasting before the Lord. 
think that's very appropriate. So that for a day or more, you might spend time, more time in prayer, uh, with the Lord in prayer. That you might more intensely feel the, the gravity of your sin as you spend time mourning, grieving, in repentance. And so it is appropriate to fast as you repent. Of course, the weight of your mourning over your sin is only matched and far exceeded by the greatness of God's grace and mercy. And third, we have repentance with the will. And of course, these three aspects, they aren't like three steps that you do one and then two and then three. The three go together. And here, of course, is that you must stop the sinful behavior. This is what we saw when the king declared, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. And we know that the Ninevites, they followed through because in verse 10 it says that God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. And to repent with the will, you must make a determined commitment that you will no longer walk in this sin against the Lord. Of course, there are sins that are not something you can so simply just stop doing. You may need to make a plan. You may need to find help from someone else. You may need accountability. Think, for example, of sins that are spontaneous reactions to certain situations. We think of sinful anger that only, uh, only arises on certain times when you are provoked. When you repent of the sin, you may need to take the time to understand what is behind this anger. You must take the steps necessary to prevent giving into that anger the next time you are provoked. And so this is going to require some deep work, ultimately some real character change. In fact, we know it requires the work of the Holy Spirit. All true repentance does. All three aspects of repentance, they must go together. Repentance with the mind, with the heart, and with the will. And coming back to Nineveh's repentance, we see how the king says, who knows, God may turn and relent. Perhaps he will, perhaps he won't. How it is honorable that the king acknowledges here the sovereignty of God. He will do what he will do. Now Jonah certainly hadn't given any assurances and yet the king says, we ought to repent and grieve our sins either way. We will simply hope that perhaps he will have mercy. And of course, that's what we see. That's our third point, the wondrous mercy of God. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The Lord shows mercy to this city. It was only by his mercy that he had decided to send Jonah in the first place. We can compare this to the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. There he sent his angels only to get Lot and his family out, not to save anyone. It was only by his mercy that they had believed and repented of their sins. The human heart is too hard to respond to the word of God unless the spirit of God works within it. And while they did repent of their violence and evil deeds, we don't see any evidence that they abandoned their false gods and idols and put their faith in the Lord like the sailors back in chapter 1. There is repentance here, but not conversion. And yet still, the Lord has mercy. The application of this to you today is to consider 
the mercy of God. For the Ninevites here, they respond with so little light. They heard only this brief message on the wrath and judgment of God. They hardly knew anything of his love and grace and mercy. They only guessed that there might be, there might be hope because he had sent this message of judgment and the judgment was delayed for 40 days. And so they thought maybe there is hope, maybe there is mercy. But compare that to all the light, all the revelation that we have after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, after the completion of the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, we know so much more. We know more about the holiness and the wrath of God against sin, but we also know so much more about the abundance and the grace and his promises of mercy. Consider how Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you must repent. Yes, you must turn from your sin to escape the coming wrath of God. But there is an incredible promise in the gospel because of what Jesus Christ has done. He has gone to the cross to bear the sin of all who trust in him. He has already taken on himself the wrath that we all deserve. He has taken it on his body. He has borne it so that you might be forgiven. And if you turn from your sin, if you repent and trust in Christ, you do not say, who knows? Maybe, perhaps God will have mercy. Perhaps he will relent. No, you can turn to his word and you can say with confidence, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1.9. You can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. You can say, he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. What incredible security you have when you repent and trust in Christ. Of course, you must do so. You must turn from your sin and trust in the Savior. But when you do so, what a gracious and merciful God we have who has given us such marvelous promises, such incredible security in Christ. So look to Christ and rest upon the grace and mercy of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful mercy that we see displayed here that you have shown to Nineveh. But how much more mercy you have shown to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has gone to the cross, that he has borne the wrath that we deserve so that we know that we can trust in the promises offered to us with such clarity in the gospel, in your holy scriptures. Lord, we pray that you would comfort us and strengthen us uh, to know 
with such great surety that these promises are true, that every promise is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so we give you thanks and praise for what he has done. And may we walk in great confidence and live lives of gratitude honoring you. Lord, we pray that the world would know and that you would be um, at work uh, in those all around us, that they may know not only of your coming wrath, but of the good news that there is grace and mercy in you, that they might flee the wrath to come to the Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray it in his name. Amen.